Thank you for listening to Christ Church Showmans. This is Jared Sparks, one of the pastors at Christ Church Carbondale. We want to thank you so much for listening, as Ransom said, my son. And we ultimately hope that these are God-honoring. And because they are God-honoring, we hope that they are also edifying and encouraging and, and challenging to you in the best sort of way. Thanks so much for listening. Ecclesiastes 5, <coughs> verse 20. Sermon title is How to Enjoy Wealth and Possessions. We also have a sub-sermon in this passage today based on the breakdown of the text. And so it's going to be a little bit interesting as we work through this passage together. But before we even read, let's pray and ask the Lord's help and trust fully that you will give it. Lord, we thank you for the fact that we know as your people that when we pray, when we gather together, we're not here alone. Holy Spirit, you're at work in our lives, in our minds, in our hearts, and then collectively as this church, as this assembly, you're working here this morning. Lord, we ask for your leadership, we ask for help, we pray that you'd help me to preach faithfully, and that you would sharpen us, that you would change us, that you would chisel away anything that needs to be chiseled away in our life by your word. Sanctify, sanctify us with your word this morning. Glorify yourself. We thank you for the churches that are gathered throughout the city. We ask for protection, and also, God, we ask that you would send revival in this city. We pray that darkness would be pushed back, and that more and more people would bow their knee to you, Jesus, that they would repent of their sins and trust in you, that more and more people would want to live their lives in obedience to your word. And then, God, we pray for these churches in California that are facing serious ramifications in this country, in our day. We probably never thought we would see something like this. But, God, I pray for protection, and I pray for boldness. I pray that these parishioners there, that these members, church members, would not be afraid. I pray for boldness for pastors to stand against the tyrannical government in California. I pray that they would stand, and I pray that more and more churches wouldn't just say, oh, it's no big deal, comply, comply, comply. I pray that they would stand firm because your word calls them to. And that you would give them boldness. And you would help them not care what the world thinks, but care more about what you think. Lord, we know that you're watching that you're sovereign and you're your people. And so we trust that you're going to help, that you're going to move, that you're going to work. We trust that you're going to do that here this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. As stated, verses 8 through 20. I'm not going to read the whole text. I'm going to read section by section as I preach. But scriptures, you, as you know, have a lot to say about money and a lot to say about possessions. Both the rich and the poor can love money. The rich have a tendency to love money to their detriment and to the hurt of others, putting too much trust and love in their possessions. The poor can love the possessions of the rich and seek to demand they have what the rich have. The rich and poor can both love money and possessions. 1 Timothy 6.10, we know this. The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And many commentators and preachers have made the note of it's not money that is the root of all kinds of evil. It's the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil. It goes on to say, it is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. The misuse of money can cause a lot of damage. And the pursuit of more money and more possession is a fruitless pursuit. Jesus had lots to say about money and possessions. 
Luke 12, my father and I were talking about this yesterday. I've been working through this passage and thinking through about this this week. There's a rich man who looked at his possessions, and instead of saying these possessions are going to belong to the next generation, my children or their children's children, or to my neighbor or my friend, he, he built and had everything that he needed and then realized these barns aren't big enough. And so in his leisure and in his excess, he built bigger built barns, and then he built bigger barns to keep putting his possessions in. And Jesus addressed that man and told him that he had traded his soul for possessions and for a life of ease. Whose will that man's excess be? Hoarding money is evil. Money is not evil. Building money for an inheritance is a good and noble thing. That's a good and noble thing. But building money just for yourself to consume with no thoughts of kids, grandkids, neighbors, friends, or the city is an evil, evil thing. There's a common thing that unites the rich and the poor. Loving money does not make you happy. Loving money does not make you happy. Money can answer a lot of problems in life. It can pay for the light bill that's past due. It can put food in your belly. It can help a neighbor or a coworker or a friend, but it cannot make you happy. And as much as I say that or as anybody else says that, there's somebody out there that's like, yeah, but if I just had a little bit more, I'd be happy. <laughs> I was, you really wouldn't. You're not happy with what you got, you won't be happy with what you have. But before we get to that, in money and possessions that are a gift from God, they can't be enjoyed, we're warned about the misuse, but first we're going to talk about verses 5 or 8 through 9. Look at me, look with me in those two verses. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high official is watched by a higher and there's yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way. A king committed to cultivated fields. We need to talk a little bit about the doctrine of the lesser magistrates. The doctrine of the lesser magistrates. A magistrate is a word that's been rediscovered over the last decade or so. It's an old English word that's been used to talk about judges. If you look at movies or shows like Turn on AMC. We'll talk about the local judge as a magistrate. The magistrate is anybody that's an elected official or appointed official in a society. They can be public servants, elected as a representative. They can be uh, even police officers uh, who are, are hired on and they carry an authority in a city. They can be a mayor, a, a regional leader, like a senator or a representative, then a governor, all States, all of those are magistrates, and they are lesser and greater magistrates. And in this passage, we find that there's oppression of the poor, violation of justice and righteousness, and then there's this order of authority of, of those who are being watched by high officials. So there's officials, and then there's higher officials and higher officials over them. Just see it right there in the text. And then we're told that when we have a benevolent king who is committed to cultivating his field, taking care of what's entrusted to him, and, and wanting to see it thrive, that is a great gain for those who are in that field. The field is a metaphor for the kingdom of the king. When the king is living in such a way that those who are under his rule are flourishing, it's good for everybody. But when the king is working in such a way that the field is not being cultivated, but only his gain and his household is being cultivated, it causes great damage. 
But we're told, do not be surprised when you see the oppression of the poor. Do not be surprised when you see the violation of justice and righteousness. And do not be surprised when you see corruption. Don't be shocked. Don't be surprised. Why? Because people are evil. The presupposition that Solomon is dealing with in the book of Ecclesiastes is that under the sun, people are living many lives, attending the best they can in a life separated from God. In a life as if God doesn't exist. And so don't be surprised then when godless people live out the conclusions of their godless worldview. It, it reveals itself in a society. So you're going to see the poor being oppressed. You're going to see justice abandoned. You're going to see righteousness gone from a community, a city, or a, or a state. And you're going to see corruption. We've seen this right now. now. Now think about the poor, justice, and righteousness. These are words that are floating around like crazy everywhere right now. Again, isn't it shocking? How relevant, I said it three weeks in a row now, how relevant the book of Ecclesiastes has been in our day, in this moment, in the United States. It's just been astounding to me. Let's talk about the oppression of the poor. Do you know the strategy of Planned Parenthood from its beginning was to put itself in low-income minority communities? Did you know that? Okay, a lot of you did. That's good. The plan was to weed out or kill out undesirable people in the community. So let's get out minorities of a certain skin color and let's kill off the poor. Let's just get out the undesirables, let's put these clinics here. And you can see the damage through the decades that Planned Parenthood and abortion has made on minority communities and poor communities. Decimated communities, keeping them in poverty, and keeping, keeping populations low. It's everywhere. You want to perpetuate generational poverty? Then incentivize fatherlessness and encourage women to marry the state. We see that happens. Generation after generation of poverty. Incentivizing fatherlessness and encouraging women to have their household be taken care of by the state. Not all of those things are necessarily bad, but in a large scale, what we see when fatherless, fatherless homes are perpetuated generation after generation is the havoc that we see on the streets, not just in Chicago, but not just Portland, not just, it's, this is fatherless, it's fatherlessness. What about a violation of justice? Police brutality is not the problem in our country. It's not a violation of justice in our country. Is police brutality a reality? Yeah, it's a reality. We've seen it on TV. It's not a problem that's sweeping our country. The stats that that is a fact. Police brutality is not a widespread problem in this country. People will say otherwise is a fact. It is not an issue. You can look at the statistics. And find how many unarmed black men or white men were killed, and compare that to how many police officers are killed by civilians. And every single year, police officers, more police officers are killed by civilians than are civilians by police officers. You want to hear about a violation of justice? Let's talk abortion again. Legalized murder has been around for a very long time. In 1973, even at the Supreme Court level with Roe v. Wade, even though that is not a law, it's 
conclusion that the Supreme Court came to. Murder has been happening among the most vulnerable in our society. Serial killers are in our midst and they're doing it legally. Serial killers are in our midst. And they're making millions. You're talking about the abandonment of justice in a society. Same people supporting abortion or telling people who don't wear masks that they're evil villains against the state as they celebrate the murder of millions of babies. As John MacArthur says, as if they're taking the moral high ground here. Children are being murdered. And any politician who claims to care about life during COVID-19 but supports abortion is an absolute liar. Our society is pretending to care about life. Sodomy is rewarded in our society. Joe Biden recently came out and said transgender rights are the civil rights battle of our day. Restrictions being put on church gatherings, but not on rights. You can see that John Carter video, you know, watch it. It's floating around, you can find it, Google. The Overton Window. Has anybody heard about the Overton Window before? The Overton Window? If you haven't, let me explain. The Overton Window is the range of public policies that are acceptable to the mainstream population over any given time. It's what's normal, what society accepts as normal. So an easy way to talk about the Overton Window is talking about media and television. What was acceptable in the year 2000 was wicked compared to what was acceptable in 1990. What was acceptable in public conversation in 1990 was evil in 1980. You just, by decade, you can look at this. Now, what was acceptable in 2000 compared to what's acceptable in 2020, the chasm is just, if you took Christians out of 2020 and just kind of picked them up and put them, or 20, 2000 and picked them up and put them in 2020, they would have behaved differently in 2000. They would have taken things more serious than they, than, than they did. We would have. Me, I would have. Because you're going to take those, the year 2000 people and put them in the year 2020 and they would have been looking around and watching TV and what's this thing called Facebook and Twitter and they, they would be looking at it and be like, what in the world is happening? The Overton window, what's normalized in a society. 2020 goes down as the year where common sense becomes radical. Just be a commonsensical person in our day to day and see what people say to you. Just approach difficulties and problems with common sense. Try to have a conversation with people who disagree with a conversation or disagree with somebody. Just speak with common sense and see, work and see how far they get you. It's just astounding. It seems like there's secret knowledge that everybody has. There's a conversation going on with my, with my peers, my uh, coworkers, men that I, I love and follow and listen to over the years. And as I hear them talk about what's happening, it's like I need to get the earplugs out and think, like, wait, wait a minute, what's going on? What is this secret thing that if I, what are you saying that everybody else, has anybody just thought, like, what am I not getting here? So when a king is committed to cultivating fields, the land is blessed. And leaders elected or appointed, or kings, if we live in a monarchy, they have an obligation from God to cultivate the fields they serve. And each of these authorities are watched by a higher authority. We're going to turn quickly to Romans 13 and look at this. 
and then we're going to get into our text. Again, I said this is kind of a two-part sermon. It's almost like a sermon within a sermon. We're going to get to the proper enjoyment of wealth and possessions here in a second. But this is the way the text goes. It just, it's kind of like it's just there. It could have been a sermon in and of itself, but when it's there, we don't want to avoid it. I just decided to put them both together and then trusted that you can handle looking at both of these ideas together. Romans 13, I'm going to look at 1, 1 through 5. Let me just read it. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror for good conduct, but to bad. When you have no fear of the one who is in authority, then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. But he is a servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the evildoer. Therefore, one must be subject, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. This has been the, center, the central debate of everything that's been going on and how the church can conduct themselves in light of what the state has been doing and the federal government has been doing over the last several months. This is the epicenter where Christians have really wrestled through this in 1 Peter chapter 2 and legitimately coming to different conclusions. But I want to note a couple things in this text. One, when rulers start terrorizing good conduct and favoring bad conduct, they are not doing the work of God. We're told here that they are God's Appointed means not to terrorize good conduct, but bad. So what happens then when good conduct is terrorized and bad conduct is rewarded? That's been happening, and it's been happening for a long time in our society. It's just I'm starting to finally get eyes to see how twisted and upside down leadership in our nation and world has been. When this happens... Those magistrates, those leaders are at war with God, and they're at war with the responsibilities given to them by God. And that's happening. We can say, well, what about Nero? When this was written, Nero was about to come and decimate the church in Rome. Well, here's the point. With Nero, they resisted Nero even to the point of being burned alive. They resisted. This, the whole point of this is never, ever, ever resist evil rule in the same way that a wife is to be subject to her husband or children or to obey their parents. There's limitations upon those commands. And when a nation, when leaders, representative of the people in our society, when they rule and reward evil instead of good and punish people who are doing good, they're at war with God. And God There are commands to rulers here in Romans 13, 1-5. There are commands to rulers. Rulers are to know right and wrong according to God's standards. They are to know what to punish and what to reward. They are to punish bad conduct, not good conduct. Magistrates have an obligation from lesser to greater to honor God with their authority. 
fact, is in the fact that we have a God of the universe who has committed himself to us. And if we have different conclusions, here's what we can agree with. Jesus is a good king who is committed to, committed to cultivating his bride, the church, to beautifying us and taking care of us, to protecting us and to advance his cause through us no matter what wicked rulers do. I don't know what the future holds in our city or our state, but I know what long term is going to happen. And that should give us great confidence. Look at Ecclesiastes 8 and 9 again. Do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for the land in every way, a king committed to cultivate the Join me in praying, like 1 Timothy chapter 2 calls us to pray, for our officials to lead in such a way that would honor the Lord, and that would punish the wicked, and reward the good. And that they would stop rewarding the wicked and punishing the good. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I pray over our city officials. I lift up our government in Illinois. Pray for J.D. Pritzker. The man has blood on his hands. He has done wicked things. So much so that there are countless millions in our state whose consciences have been so seared that they don't, do not see the evil that's happening right in front of us. The killing of babies, the murder that's happening is atrocious. And the hypocrisy now with what's going on with COVID It's plain. It's just simple. It's clear. So God, I pray for repentance. I pray that local leaders would repent. The celebration of wicked things in our city. I pray that state leaders would repent. I ask that you would send Christians into those elected or appointed positions who will honor you, punish the wicked, and reward the good. We pray for President Trump. God, we ask for genuine repentance from him. Thank you for all the good that you have done through him in spite of him. And whoever's elected in the fall, we're going to honor them. And we're going to pray for them also. And we're going to trust that you're going to work in spite of them as well. I pray for these churches, God, build up churches throughout this, your church throughout this land. To walk in our civic responsibilities as you call us to. To pray for our leaders, to not disrespect them, to submit to them. And help us to be a prophetic voice to them as well. Or give us wisdom and direction. Help us. Give us grace as we come to different conclusions. Help us. 
But God, we pray that we would have leaders who would be committed to cultivating fields. That we'd have leaders that are committed to see freedom on the streets. Help us as we continue on through this text. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Verse 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. Now we're going to start Sermon 2 this morning with verse 10, and we're going to eventually get to verse 19. Listen to what verse 19 says, and then we'll fill in the gaps in the middle. Verse 19. Everyone also knew God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them. And to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is God's gift to man. Or this is the gift of God. So we start with the problem. If you love money and you love possessions, you will not be satisfied with money or those possessions. It's vanity. There's a love problem. If you look at your life, you can see this. As you look down at your life, there's times that you've had more money and less money. If you fall in love with money, you'll never have enough. It never comes through for you the way that you want it to come through for you. That's why if you ask anybody, would you be able, if, if you just made $15,000 more a year, would that be the answer to your problems? Everybody's like, you know, $15,000 a year raised, yeah, that pretty much would answer all my problems. But no matter what scale, you ask somebody who makes one hundred and fifty grand, if they make fifteen grand more, yeah, yeah that, that, that would be really helpful. But it's, all, the, the, the thought is always, if I just had a little bit more, I'd be a little bit better off, and I'd be a little bit more happy. But we're told if you love money and love wealth, you're not going to be satisfied with it. Loving riches will never get a man what he wants. Never get a man happiness. It's the devil's lie and it's so appealing. It's the fruit that's always dangled right out in front. More money. More money. There's a rap one rap who said, one time more money, more problems. I recorded a country music singer last week, so I had to quote a rapper this week. I guess I didn't have to. It's so appealing. Money. Verse 11. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer. When he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. Now, Antonio Walker was a basketball player. He played with Celtics. He played basketball at the University of Kentucky. He got drafted. And he had a pretty good career, a pretty successful career. I think he played 12 or 13 seasons. Had a sharp decline. But over his career, he made $108 million. $108 million just playing basketball. That doesn't include, it doesn't include all the other things that come with being a professional athlete. $108 million in his playing career. His goods increased, and those who ate with him increased. But what advantage did he have but to see them with his own eyes? It's a really good metaphor here. Uh, in his life, Right after his playing career, he lost it all. All 108 million is gone. It was a matter of a year or two after playing. Thank you, NBA. 108 million dollars. You go, you know, you gotta think, how could I, how could I spend 108 million dollars? Apparently, there's ways to spend 108 million dollars. He said that he was supporting during that time 30 people financially. And he said during that time he's not debt free. By the way, he paid off his debts, and he since 2013 has been debt free and, and working to help other people not make the same mistakes that he made. But he said he was like a personal ATM. All these 30 people would come to him and he would just, he would bankroll them. 30 people, just whatever you want. Buy houses, cars, 
vacations, you name it. He just come and his goods increased. And exactly what Solomon is saying here, what advantage has their only owner but to see, see them with their eyes? He saw them take his money and go do some things, and he saw all of his money go away. But in verse 12, the contrast to this is that the laborer, on the other hand, he sleeps well. With little or much food, he's worked hard, and he's going to sleep well. The rich has the full stomach and doesn't sleep well. Sleep well. And again, the rich here, we can say the rich is a person who loves money. There are other rich people in the scriptures who don't love money. They love God, and so they know how to use money. They know how money is a, is a gift from God and is a tool. But this particular rich person cannot sleep. The stomach is full, and he's watched all his earnings with his own eyes walk away. When you love money, you think it will never leave you. But it leaves you. It will leave you. It cannot get you what you want. Riches can cause a lot of pain. That's what verse 13 says. Look. With me again, there's grievous evil that I've seen under the sun. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt. Riches kept by his owner, by, by their owner to his hurt. A riches kept by a man can easily hurt that man. He can hurt himself with it. Not just physically, emotionally, spiritually. And the promise of money is always going to bring pain if you love it. It does the opposite of what it promises to do. You know, money comes with promises. There's all these strings attached. There was a man I, when I was working construction, I was running around chasing hail damage, and I was only seeing this roof being put on by the crew. And the man who was getting his roof redone owned two houses, and in the '80s he won seventy-three million dollars a lot. Seventy-three million, a lot of money. Less than 108, but still a lot of money, right? I think we could probably do pretty good with $73 million. This man rolled up, stained, nasty, black sweatpants, no shirt on, with, it was like it was a TV character. He had a fur coat on, holding a little dog. Looked like he had showered in days. Comes out on a decked out golf cart with rims on it. And comes up, opens his garage, and it's full of cars, Mercedes-Benz, Audis, flat tires, haven't been started in years. Just wanted to show me the garage full of stuff. There's these whippets, these, these like, drugs that people used to do, that, CEO, that, that people used to take these whippets, these things, and they were all over this, just the drug. He won $73 million. This man was absolutely miserable. Stoned out. He was very sad. It does the opposite of what we think it will do. Money will provide me a life where I can just have fun and have buddies and buy stuff. And then you become a baby who's all alone with a dog wearing stained sweatpants. Think about look at verse 14 and 16. Think about any other rich people who destroy lives with their riches. Those riches are lost in a bad adventure, and he's a father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's, mother's womb, he should go again, naked as he came, and take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This is also a grievous evil. Just as he came, so he shall he go. And what gain is there to him who extol, who, who toils for the wind? There's stories of people who have riches and don't think they need anybody and 
the man or woman who thinks they don't need anybody is the man or woman who eventually has nobody. That's the wicked thing about so much independence that you think I can do this myself and don't need anybody else to help. Eventually, you won't have anybody else to help. The man loses it. He has nothing to leave his son. Doesn't know how to manage his money. And it turns out so sad. There's sadness. This man came into the world naked, will leave the world naked and alone. He just feels sorry. Verse 17, he eats in darkness, vexation, sickness, and anger. Look at verse 17. Moreover, all the days of his life, he eats with darkness and much vexation and sickness and anger. Does anybody want that life? The end of loving money. If you have the ability to get money, and there are certain people who know how to get money out of a rock. They, get, they start with a rock and somehow they trade it on Craigslist or the internet and they end up with a brand new BMW. There are some people who can just turn a, a minor investment into a major reward. There are people who are just so gifted with making money. But if you love it, if your heart goes after it, there's only sadness on the other end. Money will decimate people if you love it. But there's a better way. There is a better way. And what happens sometimes in evangelical circles and what's happened in my history is forgot the nuance that it's not money that's the root of all evil, it's the love of money. And we can villainize money, villainize wealth, villainize possessions, and pull a mallet out every Christmas and make Christians feel guilty for buying their children gifts. Consumers, consumers, consumers. My goodness, how many years I got caught up in just instead of encouraging people to enjoy the gifts God's given them, making people feel guilty for it. Give to others, give to others. Absolutely give to others. Oh my goodness, give to your children and to your grandchildren. You don't have to spoil them. There needs to be a, a culture in your home of giving to others outside your home as well. But money and wealth, possessions, they're not evil in and of themselves. But if you love them, that's the road you don't want to go down. Look at verse 18. There's such a better way. Behold, what I have seen to do to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and to find enjoyment in the toil with which one toils under the sun. For a few days, there's a life that God has given them, but this is his lot. Everyone also, excuse me, to whom God has given wealth, possessions, and power to enjoy them, and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is God's Gift. This is the gift of God. Eat and drink and find enjoyment while you live your life. Again, this is Solomon the preacher, and he's given us so much insight. Sometimes Solomon is reflecting back on his days and the futility of philosophy without, without God. The, the futility of trying to think the best way you can think as if God doesn't exist gets you nowhere to come up with really silly and goofy ideas. But then Solomon the preacher comes and it's like he brings us this wisdom from above and he's been dumping it like a dump truck on us. It's just been wisdom, 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 wisdom. And this is wisdom for us. This will save us from a life of guilt if God bless. There are going to be people who are in different stages the social economic status here. Where there's going to be people who are going to be, have less money, there's going to be people who have more money. We have a tendency, even in, Tim Keller just came up with this big article about uh, the critique of, of, of godless ideas of justice. And he didn't do a very good job, even though everybody's saying he did, in, saying, in, in giving his critique. 
But there, there's going to be this idea to elevate the poor, and, and people are going to say, well, look, the Bible just idealizes, makes the poor at this, at this, uh, this elevated status in scriptures, as if we should always just uh, you know, feel sorry if we have money or if we're, if we're rich in some way and want to be poor, like you know, the people in the Bible that Jesus like, associated with. And yes, there's elements of truth in that. They're absolutely, Jesus didn't have a home, for goodness sake. shouldn't be running around thinking everybody that doesn't have a lot of money doesn't have a lot of money because they've lived life really terrible. A lot of times that is the case. But we shouldn't idolize the poor and we shouldn't idolize the rich. In the scriptures, this is a morally neutral thing here. And money can be used just like anything else in positive and negative ways. It's just like power needs to be wielded. It's just like, just like sex. It needs to be done the way God says it needs to be done. It's just like any other thing that we see in our life. How can I use this properly? How can I not misuse this? And someone's giving us wisdom. Here's how you can live your life wisely. All the days that God has given you, with the toil that's in it, there's still a recognition that there's going to be toil. You're going to live your life and have joy all the days of your life. You're still going to have thorns and thistles. It's still going to be hard. You're still going to have difficult days. But difficult days don't mean days. And so he tells us, find enjoyment while you live your life. Be happy. Be happy. Then I get a question. How, how, how can I be happy? Look at verse 19 again. It's given from above the sun. 19 again. Everyone to whom God has given wealth and possessions. Let's just stop. Where do wealth and possessions come from? God. God. That's clear. If you have wealth and possessions, it's a gift from God. Is it true that the enemy can give things to us that are not good for us? That he can bless, bless us with wealth and possessions, shooting his arrows and leading our heart astray? Yeah, if you love money, the devil loves to tempt people in the way the devil tempts people. But if you're a Christian, you love the Lord, and you have wealth and possessions, those are gifts from God. It didn't come from exploiting others. It came directly from the hands of God. And it says that God gives them power to enjoy them. Let me ask you this. If you enjoy wealth and possessions, is that wrong? It's not. If God's given it to you, by the grace of God, enjoy it. Don't love it. Enjoy it. It hasn't earned your love. God has. But enjoy it. They're gifts from the Lord. If you love them, you can't enjoy them. Verse 10, we're told, if you love them, you can't enjoy them. You can't use them properly. But in verse 19, if God gives them to you and you don't love them because you love Him, then accept your lot. God has given you all this and be happy. There are a lot of rich people in the church that have been condemned for having money. Rather than told this, wield it wisely, don't love it, but enjoy it. Enjoy it. Be generous. Give as God has instructed you to give, but enjoy it. Rejoice. Thank Him. Praise Him. This is God's gift. And I want to appeal to you today to not fall in love with wealth and possessions. Love God. Thank Him for those those blessings and see how big of a difference that is. 
Loving wealth and possessions is evil, and it leads to all kinds of evil. But wealth and possessions can be very much enjoyed. And we should enjoy them. Verse 20. For he will not much remember the days of his life, because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. I love this. Solomon is saying, hey, listen, you talk to a saint, you talk to an old Christian, you walk with the Lord for a long time, and you'll find it. There's crotchy ones out here. There's, there's miser Christians out here. And they want to sit down, sit down and tell you how terrible their life has been. But that's not right. That's sin. Life's hard. Yep. But when I'm an old man, and I'm sitting down talking about my life, I'm not going to I'm not going to spend a ton of time talking about what's going on with my dad. But I am going to talk about the joy that God has given me decade on end. For my children, and one day, by God's grace, if I get to live that long with my grandkids. But think about all that God has done in our midst as the people of God in the church. We talk about, think about, we got to see so many people baptized. Here's what I'm so excited about through the decades, friends. Every pastor that's been a pastor for a long period of time will tell you that there's some seasons, it was just unexplainable, that God did this precious move, and I'll go back There's other seasons where it feels like a decade of just kind of plugging along, being faithful, it doesn't feel like there's a lot of growth, it seems like there's a lot of people meet Jesus. But you know what we're going to see, and we've seen some of this through the years, we're going to see this as we live life together, as we follow the Lord together. We're going to see seasons and windows where God works in this special way, and it's going to be so precious. And you know what? I cannot wait to be an old man and tell people about the Lord of God. Can't wait to tell him what he's done in my marriage as we continue to love each other. Now, for the years, 10 years strong, we, we hope to live a very long life. God gives us that and enjoy marriage. Not just get through marriage, not just fight through marriage. Life drags on and on for some people, and it never gets better. And they'll tell you about it. But for the Christian, joy is the way of life. This is what verse 20 says. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. And in context with the previous verse about rejoicing in his toil, it's not saying that he's not going to remember any of his life. It's, it's saying that he's not going to remember the toil of his life. That the primary marker of his life is not going to be the thorns of the thistles and the attacks from the enemy. It's not going to be the providential difficulties that produce me like fire, like Gold is produced in fire. It's going to be looking at the providence of God in our life, and it's going to be thinking about all that God has done and the joy that I've got to, got to experience in this life. It's the old man or woman walk with the Lord who looks back with a smile, tips your hat, and you say, God has been faithful. Like David, I've been young, and I've been old, but I have never seen the righteous forsaken. The difficult times are not even remembered. Find joy. Fight for joy. This is a mark of the church. We're a happy people. Our sins are forgiven, and God's happy with us. Amen. We don't have the guilt and condemnation that the world has suppresses and acts like isn't there. Amen. God, the universe is our heavenly Father. For goodness sake, be happy. Right. If not in this moment, I'm not. If not for your whole life, and I realize that there are difficulties at a mental level and. In chemical level that people deal with, with depression and anxiety, but my goodness, friends, let us be authentically happy in our life. If God gives you something, don't love it, but enjoy it as a gift from His hand. 
There is a uh, something that I, I want to be wary of as a church. And if the Lord ever leads you into another church, go somewhere else, be wary of this here. Take this with you. But, but we live in a day even in church culture where joy is suspect, where real happiness is suspect. A depression and sadness, for some reason, is it's almost like it's popular in some Christian circles. And it's paired with this word authenticity. So just be real, man. Tell us how angry and unhappy you really are. Just be real. You've been there, small groups before. And we want to be real. We don't be a bunch of fake, separate wives, people walking around just acting like everything's okay. It's not. We want to be honest. We want to be able to encourage and help one another. But I don't want joy, true happiness. True happiness. And I, those are synonyms in my if, if you don't know, joy and happiness to me the exact same thing because those are the exact same thing. <coughs> Let us not be subject or suspect of joy and happiness in our midst. Let's not buy the lie that every Christian is secretly sad and depressed like the rest of the world. When somebody looks happy, I don't want to be suspicious wondering what's really going on. Look at that fakeness. I've done that before. I've done that before. Assume somebody's being fake rather than actually happy. Maybe that's the case. If you fake happiness all the time, then. But I would expect that the people of God, because they know the God of the universe, and they live under this banner of no condemnation, that we're not carrying around the same burdens. We know the burden of it. Like we, we know the one who's taken our sins away. We know the one who's given us his very righteousness. We have a smile of God upon us. And those thorns and thistles that may come our way are coming behind that. There's a smiling Heavenly Father who's doing all things good for us and nothing harmful for us. If you're not happy, you may need medication. Or you may need to repent. You gotta pray through that. I won't risk. I won't risk. I don't want you to feel condemned. I don't want you to feel condemned. But fight for joy. Fight for it. Get back to the basics of the cross of Christ. Christ for you. If you struggle with finding joy and enjoying wealth and possessions, the things that God has given you, go back to the primary thing God has given you spiritual life. Think about what God has done for you in Christ Jesus. Dwell there. Stay there until happiness returns. Don't go anywhere else. God, thank you for saving me. Thank you. I know how much I sinned against you. And you came to me as a son. You, you brought me in as your son. God, thank you for your kindness to me. I walked in rebellion. But that didn't turn you away from me. You kept coming. And he kept coming. And he kept coming. You have Jesus. And Jesus has you. That is enough. It is enough. And there is not enough time in the way. There's not enough time in the day to be sad when you know your sins are forgiven. When you know Jesus, and you have that joy, you can enjoy your wealth and possessions. Friends, we live in a, a rich nation. 
blessed nation. Blessed. When you go home today, thank God for it. Enjoy your home. God, thank you. When you get in your car today, it's raining outside. You're not wet. You're not riding a horse and buggy. There's a lot of people in Southern Illinois riding a horse and buggy that are a lot happier than people driving a horse. Enjoy what God's given you. You take a bite of food today. Don't love it. Don't worship it. But thank God for it. Friends, there's a way to enjoy wealth and possessions when you don't love them. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace.